You know, I feel like I just said this. Sorry, I can't actually do Southern. But I really do feel like I just said, hey, it's weird how my opinions on things change over time based on, you know, watching them with analysis mode on. I liked this episode. What the hell? Now, this episode was still lacking in several key features. First of all, the scripting of this episode was just... Unlike the previous episode, Conspiracy, where there was just, like, the popcorn being thrown, it's like the projector, to continue the movie analogy, like, you're in there, and the projector just was off a little bit. So the whole thing was, like, over here, and there's this big black line on the right on the top, right? Because the whole script had issues. I'm not even going to begin to go into that. Other smarter, better people have really gone into analyses on how the dialogue is actively contradictory and basically feels like a rough first draft. For those of you not aware, the script is actually a rough first draft. This is the script probably hit hardest by the writer's strike that I've been mentioning for the last few episodes now. They literally couldn't bring in the proper people or or services, or even they couldn't even do uh, rewrites from certain people thanks to the way guild laws work. So they were just like, all right, film it, whatever. And it does show. Let's just make that clear. But... I don't remember this episode being as... I, I guess the word I want to use is inoffensive. It's not like it's one of the best episodes ever. But there's some legitimately great tension. Some good, interesting ideas that immediately fall flat. And then, of course... It's weirdly human. And I think that's part of why the... You know, going back and re-examining this episode has changed my opinion on it more than anything else. But I'll talk about that later. What I want to talk about right now is the Borg. Anybody who's watched my show for any length of time knows that I've... It's kind of become a running gag or a meme or whatever you want to call it to have the Borg being a thing in my show. I literally have gotten questions about the Borg on my Tumblr as recently as just a few days ago from my perspective. It is just that common of a thing. Usually a, a versus tint. Now, the problem here, the original intent for the Borg, for those of you unaware, was that this was going to be launching into this great experiment into continuity. And I'll talk a little bit more about that actually next week, where it's a little bit more, well, I guess, you know what, I'll just talk about it now. Screw it. Because it's more relevant now. So, season two was originally supposed to be a contiguous story arc with the occasional side story. Now... I'm probably explaining that wrong. So let me try this. Anybody who's seen Season 3 Enterprise knows what I mean. Or virtually any television show in the modern era. Discovery itself follows the same format from what I understand. In other words, there, each episode is just a viewpoint of a larger story. There is one or several story arcs, major story arcs, crossing the entire season. Season 2 was supposed to be several large story arcs crossing the entire season, including the beginnings of the Borg. Now, they weren't really the Borg yet, but we'll cover that when we get to Q-Who. That was all thrown out the window. See, remember what I mentioned, uh, that strike? Uh, it was five months, and I don't remember when it started, and I can't do reverse math right now, but it ended in August of that year, of 1988. Uh, I guess that would mean it started in March, something like that. Okay, so, that doesn't sound right. 
April, May, June, July, August. There we go. Yep, yeah, March. I'm right. God, why do I doubt myself? Uh, <laughs> it started in March, which means they had they were basically at the point where they had already finished most of the footage and the filming of season one, with only a couple of exceptions. That's why this strike is only really affecting us towards the end of the season. Where it's really affecting is season two. Now, I don't know if this is true at all anymore, but the way this used to work, uh, America here, in, and I know I have a lot of British viewers, so this might help a little bit. Uh, the way American television used to be constructed was you'd have a season which usually starts somewhere around August or September. It's pretty average. Pretty much to coincide with the school years over here as well. That season would run until somewhere around July-ish, June or July. And then there would be the, the in-between season break, which they would use to determine if there's going to be a new season, get you know a whole bunch of footage ready to go, uh, anything they need to do to change up the sets or the effects, or if producers stay on board or if actors are going to leave, you know, all that stuff. It's basically a nice big shake things up period because most of the contracts and work periods are calculated in terms of seasons. Or again, were. Sorry, i got to use past tense. I really don't know how it works now. Were calculated in terms of seasons. So if you were an actor, you were signed on for, you know, X number of seasons. If you were a producer, X number. If you're a cinematographer, X number. Now, there are exceptions to that, of course. And as I mentioned, the writer's room and the producer's room of TNG Season 1 had an insane and absolutely ludicrous amount of turnover. But for the most part, that in-between break is when you're supposed to really get ready for the next season. Well, writer's strike. That didn't end until August. Now that'll be... Well, I'll discuss the impacts that has on Season 2 when we get there. And, and on, on those episodes that were actually produced... But it has an effect now because this was intended to be the beginning of a three-parter that would launch a new story arc into this contiguous experiment. Once again, I want to remind you guys, TNG, this is the late 80s, this is 1988. Television, with very, very few exceptions, didn't do long contiguous story arcs. That was considered out of vogue and out of the norm. This is a weird, crazy, wild idea, and they wanted to do this to push Star Trek into a new direction. Now, what's really weird <laughs> is one of the biggest proponents of this was Maurice Hurley. Now, if you under don't understand why I say that was really weird, let me just say that Maurice Hurley is usually one of the more hated figures when it comes to the creation of Star Trek in general. I myself, of course, have my long-standing feud against Rick Berman, which isn't actually a joke. He really is kind of a horrible person and has done horrible things to the franchise, even though I will acknowledge his contributions to the franchise as well. But when I talk about, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've said, oh, God, I, re I really hate this person, or you can't, you know, you, you want to imagine who was really responsible for this screw-up when it comes to TNG. Most people's automatic guess is Maurice Hurley. He was the one really pushing for this contiguous season two arc thing. Now, it's possible, based on very anecdotal evidence, that the main reason he was pushing for this was not the creative impetus for doing that, was not the desire for longer, more story-driven character arcs or story arcs, but instead an attempt to solidify his control over the show, because this was when the whole politicking, politicking thing, you know, as I mentioned earlier, was really getting started, and Maurice was actively trying to become the mainliner. Now, I know that that's a term... Uh, that I'm one of the only people who actually uses, but to be clear, just to de describe this really quickly, when I say the term mainliner, I mean the person really in charge of a television show. 
Sometimes it's a producer, sometimes it's a director, sometimes it's one of the actors, sometimes it's one of the executive producers. That doesn't matter. It's the person who is most in charge of a show. Uh, JMS over on Babylon 5 is the easiest explanation. Um, for the latter end of Voyager, it was Brandon Braga, for example. Even though Rick Berman was technically his superior, Braga was the mainliner. You with me? So we there are, there is a decent amount of evidence to the point of... I'm at least willing to buy it that Maurice Hurley was trying to become TNG's mainliner, and this was one of his pushes in that direction. I don't know if this is true. Remember, facts about early TNG are kind of muddled, because most of it comes from interviews with people who get kind of emotional and tend to disagree with each other. Now that being stated, next thing I want to point out is that they really wanted the Borg to be a major villainous force. They reintroduced the Romulans in this episode, but the original intent was to reintroduce the Romulans and kind of use that as a segue to show how the Federation and how Star Trek had moved forward. In fact, Roddenberry himself was very hesitant to reintroduce the Romulans actually into the show. Remember earlier, they basically just copy-pasted the word Romulan over the word Ferengi in scripts, but this is really bringing the Romulans into the, into the foray. Now, I know if you're paying attention, you've already noticed the problem here. Because the Romulans have been mentioned as interacting with or having battle fleets or whatever several times in previous episodes because of the Ferengi thing. And yet this episode insists we haven't had, heard hide nor hair from the Romulans in 50 years. Ever since the, what was it, the incident, the Tomed incident and the Treaty of Algernon. You can kind of see how that doesn't quite line up. Especially since they get to the point where they're not even sure how their cloaking works or what their ships look like or what their policies are or technology or anything like that. This is probably a result of the rough draft script, if I was to be honest. This kind of stuff could be smoothed out with just a few polishing passes, which obviously the episode never got, as I mentioned earlier. This, is also, this episode is also significant in a couple other ways. First of all, uh, let, let's talk about the Borg really quick again, because this episode purports that the Borg are actively invading en masse, hitting multiple colonies of both the Romulan Star Empire and the Federation of Planets. Now, there's a lot of different maps of Star Trek, and to my knowledge, none of them is contiguously THE map, like this is the accurate map. But that's a chunk of space by most accounts that's pretty close to, you know what you would consider home central of the Federation, territory that's relatively close there. Makes sense, after all, since even back in the TOS era, they were able to reach the Romulan territory and reach the, what at that time was the neutral zone, right? So it makes sense that it would be... I mean, you get where I'm going with this. That means the Borg were actively invading this, this area and going completely undetected from it somehow and get, just getting massive numbers of people and colonies out of nowhere and then piecing out to the Delta Quadrant? You, you already start to see how the pieces fell apart here. Most of Star Trek tries to insist, in fact, I believe they mentioned this directly in Best of Both Worlds, although we'll see when we get there, that these new, the incidents in the neutral zone were caused by the Borg. But the more you think about it, the less that makes sense. Now, I gotta admit, I've never been able to headcanon my way around this. Like, the best explanation I have is that it's not the Borg. That's the best explanation I've ever been able to come up with, because that's the one that makes the most sense to me. 
It would also make more sense if you take the Borg as they were originally conceived. I don't mean the insect thing, I mean the ship. As in, all the Borg is the one ship. Not, you know, the Borg fleets and the Borg unicomplexes and all that fun stuff. But even then, that doesn't quite explain why the Borg ship trekked a path through here and then pieced out to another quadrant. They say how far away in Q-Who, I forget why, but they say how far away it would take to get back. It's way the hell out there. Yeah, you, you get where I'm going with this? Because, and then you can be like, well, the Borg have transwarp drive. Well, that would make sense, except for the fact that that cube then takes uh, literally about a year and a half to get back here. So, I mean, that's faster than we could go, but that's not like five episodes or eight episodes or whatever it is. You can see how there's just a massive disconnect, is what I'm trying to say. The, the facts all don't line up. Like I said, easiest explanation for me, it wasn't the Borg. Moving on. Now, I have no idea who it was. It was the Zenkethi. I knew it. They want after our Lucari hippies. Anyways. <clears throat> Next thing I want to mention is that this implies that the Borg managed to get Romulans, assuming this is the Borg, which, as I've already stated, doesn't quite make sense. I point that out because the next time we will have even anything like close to an inference of Borg Romulans is in Unity, which I looked it up, is nine years in real time later. Nine years of, of life happened before the, even the thought of Romulan Borg showed up again. Just funny little factoid there. Alright, so I'm done with the Borg. Um, Marco Lemo's back. This is actually his second role, as I mentioned earlier. He, he played the alien guy. Uh, back in weird episode. I can't remember the name. It, was, it wasn't a good one. We, this episode also does something surprisingly important for the series, and especially for people like me who are geeks, who like to have things make sense and line up on a timeline. This establishes the year, 2364. And it is this establishing point, that 2364 is the terminus point of Season 1, that allows us to basically approximate most of the timeline of a lot of the TNG stuff that they refer to uh, throughout the course of the series. And the writers themselves would use this in the future, too. And there's a few hiccups here or there. But you remember, uh, was it last episode? <sighs> no, it was like two episodes ago. When I was talking about, uh, yeah, it was the... We'll always have Paris. I was talking about Picard's history and how long ago that was and when Wesley was born and all that. Most of that information comes from information that is based on this date established in this episode. So, it's a nice little spoke in the ground. It's, it's good stuff. I like it. Anyways. <clears throat> now, question. Why was Picard on a shuttle? Can anyone even come up with an answer for that for me? I'm really legitimately curious. Shuttles can go a couple, like warp 2, I want to say, or maybe it's warp 4. It's not super fast. And the Enterprise is basically just hanging out, waiting for the shuttle. And Picard's off on this shuttle, uh, and based on the context, we could assume he was at some super secret tactical, you know, provision meeting, or... Not provision, that's the wrong word. God, I can't use words today. On some kind of uh, tactical briefing to learn about the Romulan situation. I mean, that makes sense. So why was he in a shuttle? Actually, they use shuttles really weirdly in all of Season 1 TNG. You ever notice that? Then again, I guess that's better than Voyager, where they keep forgetting the, the shuttles exist and have independent transporters and tractor beams and warp drives. So, whatever, I suppose. Next thing I want to comment, and I'm only going to comment on this once. The dialogue in this episode, especially for the main characters, is frankly... It's not lacking. 
it's actively wrong in cases. Like, you could get the tone based on how the actors say it, but the words coming out of their mouth when, when written down on a piece of paper sound wrong. My favorite example of this is right at the beginning, where Riker is checking out this, you know, space junk from Earth, and, he, and Data has to convince Riker to explore. I mean, he's not even a little bit curious. Also, that's literally their primary mandate. Also, it wouldn't be out of their way, and it's from a chunk, and it's from Earth, and it's from a period of Earth history which, as they've said multiple times throughout the franchise, they don't know much about. And he's just like, nah, whatever. I guess we could go exploring. Oh, whatever. Oh, fine, go ahead. I mean, he is weirdly hesitant and weirdly restrictive about the idea of just idly poking into this. Anyways. Then Worf goes over and prepares to use a phaser on a door because Worf doesn't understand the concept of a door handle. Note the door was not locked. He just had to pull the handle open. I want, to bring, I want you to, to sit on that point. I want that to remind you, because now, right now, I want to bring up my biggest problem with the episode, other than the scripting up. I mean, that's such an obvious problem. But I mean, with the episode itself. The people from the past have no point in existing. In, 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 from a narrative sense, like in the episode. I'm not saying that, the, that human beings are imperfect. If only they could be as beautiful as I... No, what I'm trying to say is that they serve no narrative purpose in this episode. They are a fish out of water. The end. That's my biggest problem with this episode. They also occupy an astonishingly large chunk of screen time. Statistically speaking, I think it's like two-thirds of the episode. I, I thought about writing down the minutes as I go, but yeah, I'm kind of on a schedule here, so screw that. But I do know they didn't even get to the meat of the Romulan issue until, God, like 15 minutes before the end of the episode because they spent so much time on the 90s humans, who I don't remember their names, by the way, so I'm just going to call them housewife, musician, and businessman. Just, just making that clear. Now, if you don't understand, I guess my point is, we brought them into the episode, and they're from the past. Therefore, they don't understand modern concepts. And the... Okay. i got to organize my thoughts here because this is just such a weird thing, it's hard for me to properly explain. We, consumers of fiction, are used to certain concepts in fiction. And thus, it has become normal, even by the late 80s, to not spend too much time on ideas we're okay with. You don't need to explain to us, the viewers, how out of sync they would feel. You don't, I mean, you could certainly add some things in there. And a lot of the dialogue actually flows well. In fact, credit to the guest stars. Um, the woman was a little bit over the top, like something, she, the way she did her voice was just weird. But for the most part, I think all three guest stars did a good job in this episode, so props to them. Although I kept thinking the woman was Sarah Connors for some reason. Anyways, so, <clears throat> they look kind of similar. The point is, all three of them did a good job of portraying their roles, but then they just kind of kept hitting that same beat over and over. Like, what's this? Oh, well, this is this thing. Well, how about this? Oh, look, look, they're out of place. 
They're from the past and they don't understand future concepts. And then the future people don't understand past concepts. And then the past people don't understand future concepts. And they just kept hitting those two beats over and over and over. There's no need to really do that. Because we get it. We understand that this is the future. We, the viewers, cognate that this is Star Trek 2364. You said it in the episode. We get it. Anyways. So they've got the fish out of water element, but they never really do much with it. And yet, I go back to the term I used to describe this episode earlier. It's inoffensive to me. With one notable exception. Don't worry, I'm building up to that. It's the, the interactions with them and the and each other and the people who interact with them, mostly Data to the musician guy, and then Picard to the businessman, and then Troy to the housewife. By the way, interesting pairing offs there, if you think about it. Most of those interactions are good. The interactions of the people interacting with themselves is good. For the most part, I'm with it. It's not great, and it's not really that memorable, but it doesn't bother me that much. <sighs> right up until the future people, the modern crew of the Enterprise, leave the room. Because what happens then is, and this happens at least three times I can remember right now off the top of my head, where they, they leave and the camera keeps following the Enterprise crew as they leave the room. And the Enterprise crew immediately goes out of their way to just blast them. Oh, God. Oh, I can't believe how... Terrible they are. They're not exactly the best signs of their people, are they? Oh my god, I'm amazed we even survived the 90s. What? This happens three times that I could name off the top of my head. Once with Riker, once with Crusher, once with Picard. And there's also the coda, where they point that out again. Twice. This is what bothers me about the episode. This right here. I mean, the fact that they're back, but not really doing anything, okay, inoffensive, whatever. The fact that the script has issues, again, a problem, but something I'm willing to go with because the acting and the music, we'll talk about that in a bit, were pretty on point. And some of the concepts were good. The preachiness, that's what pisses me off. Because they get real preachy in this episode. This is not the first time they've gotten super preachy in TNG, but this is probably, when I think of TNG getting preachy, when I think of Star Trek getting preachy, this is actually the episode I think of. And I'm not kidding about that. There's this speech Picard gives. We are, we are no longer all about the accum uh, accumulation of wealth and possessions. We're, we're, we have grown out of our infancy. God, that speech pisses me off. And you know what's funny? I remember that line and Picard's usage of it, and the, the, just the smug just dripping off of him as he says it. But I don't remember the rest of the scene. I was a little surprised re-watching that scene, because when I re-watched that scene, it wasn't like, like... The businessman wasn't that bad. I, I know that sounds weird, but he, he was demanding and obstinate, and, and he certainly went over the line. But maybe this is just down to the actor or the director, but the businessman basically cooled down and was talking to him straight, basically as an equal. Of course, that makes sense. That's why the businessman wants to talk to the captain, right? He immediately recognizes that he's military. Whether he is or not is not relevant. Let's not get into that again. But he immediately, uh, let's, go, let's go ahead and say, presumes that he's military, treats him as a member of authority, and treats straight with him straight eye to eye. You know what I mean? 
This is my equal, and I will treat with you with the respect that that is due. And then Picard smarms at him. And then his response is telling. I wrote this down. It's not about possessions. It's about power. The power to control your life. I like that line. That kind of resonated with me. The idea of seeking wealth or power or domination, not because you're greedy, not because you're selfish, not because you want to dominate others, but because you want to be in charge of your own life. I imagine a lot of you would understand that sentiment too. Lord knows I do. I've been out of control of my life many times in my life. It's a horrible feeling to be so powerless. Right? That hit me. And then the woman, uh, the housewife, I'm sorry, I really don't remember their names, uh, starts crying, understandably. That's pretty much emotional aftershock is what she's going through there. And Picard goes over and says, what's wrong? And then the businessman comes back and apologizes. Flat out says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm used to being aware of what's going on and on top of the situation, and this has really thrown me. I'm sorry. Wow! <laughs> and then Picard flat out says, that's, that's probably the first thing I've heard you say that I totally understand. And so it feels like we've reached some kind of, you know, association or negotiation or whatever, and then Picard leaves the room and immediately just disgust on his face. Oh, you need to keep this under control. These filthy, imperfect humans. If only I could wipe away the impurity and make them as perfect as I! Deliberate misquote, so I don't get copyrighted. Excuse me for yelling, but really? But you can see how this kind of has been a better episode than I thought. Because the humans, the old humans are fine. Like, I'm looking at my notes here. Um... I mean, they have a couple of hoo-hoo, they're, they're, they're fish out of water. Um, but then, you know, they, they talk things out. We get a little bit of characterization for each of them. Uh, unfortunately, the housewife gets the least. But the desire to see her children and know what happened to her family name and talking about her husband in such calm, familial tones, that was nice. And the musician who's just, he's freaking out a little bit. There's this great scene where Data says, you seem to be handling this better than anyone else. And the musician gives a line... And yet the musician pretty much went to Crusher for drugs, for uppers and downers, whatever that might actually be in this case. Because he's freaking out. That's how he copes, right? So he's, he's not actually taking this better than anyone else. He's just taking it in his own particular way. And, of course, the businessman is agitated as hell because he wants to be doing. He wants to be in control of his life. He is a man of action, a man of business, and a man who is informed. He flat out states a lot of facts and a lot of things, you know, yep, nope, yep, this, this company and this cryogenic thing, and then there's this situation. He did his research. He's not your typical lackadaisical, you know, lazy, big, fat cat. This is a man who is driven. Um, I would use the word ambitious. And he's going crazy because he can't do anything. Because he has, I mean, what, I could pull out a book or read? There's no, give me something to do. And it, it makes perfect sense. I can't believe I'm saying this because this would piss me the hell off if I was Picard. But it makes perfect sense that he would try to go to the bridge because he's going completely stir-crazy. Right? Now, if you don't understand this quite yet, those of you who have seen Babylon 5, try to picture this. Ivanova wakes up. It's 
a few hundred years in the future. People are kind of weird. Now, she's professional military, so she has a little bit more decorum. But imagine she is basically locked in a room and given nothing to do at all. Now, she probably wouldn't breach decorum because she has, you know, military background. But can't you see someone like that having the same general type of reaction? The same, I'm going to go try to find someone and do something because I'm going insane in here, doing nothing in this strange and noticeably hostile environment. Not, not hostile, well, okay, because hostile because the people have been jackasses to them, but also hostile because they've got the Romulan thing going on. And I can't believe I haven't even brought up the Romulan thing yet because I have so much to talk about when it comes to these humans. How weird is it that an episode that is designed to show how much better the Federation is than the 90s humans makes the 90s humans look so much better than the Federation? I actually wonder if this episode got the polishing passes and the rewrites and the actual screenplay uh, doctoring that was needed, if that wouldn't be true. If the Federation would come across, you know, Starfleet would come across as far more reasonable and meaningful and the humans would be a lot more terrible. I, again, I can't do Southern, forgive me, but you get my point. God. <sighs> now, uh, have I done talking about the humans? Let me check my notes really quick here. Um, I mean... <laughs> Picard gets really pissy about these people when he's like, oh, God, you, you brought them back to life? How could you? Which that actually brings me to another point. That's some pretty impressive tech. Yeah, I know they got cryo-frozen and all that, but Jesus Christ, they had actually died before being frozen, and you were able to revive them. Considering the frankly pathetic showing that the medical department has been showing in all of TNG Season 1, that's impressive. That is legit impressive. Um, so, you know, ah... Uh, um, she freaks out about Worf, shrug. You'll notice they go out of the way to not really show them anyone who isn't obviously human from that point on other than Data. Good stuff with Data, by the way. Oh yeah, there's a brief thing, uh, what is it, he said, uh, a pair of whoopies or something like that? And what I find funny, I, I can't remember the term, it means, uh, it means cars. It, it's, it's a, you know, let's go get out and drive for a bit, you know. I'm a little surprised that they never bothered to explain that in the episode. Anyways, anyways. So, the res, there's the awkward scene. Um, they never mention if the martini has synthahol or not. Because synthahol hasn't really been invented yet. Out of character. I, I just find that an interesting thing to comment on. And then Riker is super negative about them preacher. Yeah, I, I think that is it. I think that's all I have to say about them. Except for one thing. This is actually towards the end of the episode. But since we're talking about the, the past plot, let's go ahead and mention this here. Because there's a bit where the three of them are there, and Picard's like, yeah, so, <clears throat> I, uh, I think I'm going to have to drop you off, and we're going to take you back to Earth. Now, the housewife basically gets no lines there, but we know where she's going. She's going to go reconnect with her family. Okay, that's cool. I'm with that. The musician, he's happy. He gets to start his musical career all up again. Great. The businessman is miserable. But it makes perfect sense why. And it's not because he's poor. And it's not because of money. It's because of that drive, that desire to accomplish. What is the main complaint he brings up? You know, what, what is there to do? What task is there? What can I accomplish? I forget the exact word, forgive me. But he says that. And it is Picard who says, well, now your new, your new goal, your new drive is to better yourself. But that's not a goal. That's, that's not something you drive for. Not like this. He wants to do things. I already mentioned that. 
And it is wonderfully, almost ironically appropriate to me that someone like him, like the businessman, would be unhappy in paradise, at least until he found something to be driven towards. I've always kind of liked the idea that he ended up joining Starfleet to some extent or another. Uh, not necessarily the military line, but you know, maybe the research line, or maybe um, studying like sociology or terraforming or interactions with other people or diplomacy, you know, something where he could really put his passion and his drive into working and still rise up the ranks and accomplish something and so forth and so on. Because that's just a thought that appeals to me. Because otherwise he's just thinking, well, I could just go, what's the point of just sitting around and enjoying life? That's meaningless. And I find it wonderfully appropriate that this man who is a media, or not media, sorry, so who is a businessman, a wealthy businessman, who is clearly, the episode wants you to hate him, is being portrayed as what is very close to the Roddenberry ideal of a human being. Picard gives the childish perspective. Oh, just better yourself. Insert DS9 quote here. The businessman says, well, what can I accomplish? What can I do? That drive. Isn't that such an intricately human thing, especially in Star Trek? Food for thought. Let's talk about the Romulans. I have much less notes about the Romulans, like I said. First thing I want to mention, a lot of vibes of balance of terror here. Was that just me? Well, God, we haven't seen the Romulans in years. We have no idea. Obviously, we know what they look like, but we don't know what their ships look like. We don't know their tech. We don't know why they're here. Oh, God, they're attacking our outposts. Oh, God. You know, very balance of terror I'm pretty sure that was done on purpose because then the twist would be the fact that the Romulans are not behind it, unlike balance of terror. So that makes a degree of sense. But I got to come back to that 50 years thing. Sorry to bring it up again, but I want you to think about the year 1968 really quick, okay? Czechoslovakia uh, was still a, you know, a thing and having issues back in 1968. The Soviet Union still existed in 1968 as a distinct political entity. Um, I'm only bringing these things up to mention how much can change in our modern life in 50 years. Can you imagine how much things can change in the realm of Star Trek with the incredibly advanced technology and near-instant communication and transportation that they have? Because those are the major things that tend to facilitate change politically, culturally, socially. Transportation and communication. They can go across worlds in minutes. So, yeah. And in fact, I don't even have to make this point. In the next, oh, six years of TNG, the culture, dynamic political landscape of Star Trek will change drastically. And that's in six years, not 50. So you get my point. And in 50 years, we haven't heard a peep. And of course we haven't tried, because as we've already established, Starfleet in Season 1 TNG just apparently has the nah, five more minutes approach to everything. Next point I want to bring up, though. This is the really relevant point. Why 50 years of silence? Uh, from an in-character perspective, I understand exactly why this happened out of character. That's not relevant. I've already discussed that. From an in-character perspective, what the hell was the Romulan Star Empire doing for five decades? Now, their technology is advanced. They're pretty much the military superhouses, uh, superpowers of, of this particular situation. That Dederodex, by the way, God, the Dederodex is so beautiful. I remember liking it the first time I saw it. It's such a very, very amazing ship. Anyways, um... 
you know, they've got big ships and they've got big guns and they've got better cloaks, but what have they been doing for five decades? What prompted that need to go completely insular? Any theories? I actually looked this up. There's no official explanation. So what do you got? I got nothing. Um, <laughs> this is one of those, this is hard to explain because it's kind of ridiculous situations. I mean, massive internecine conflicts and affairs, maybe? To the point of, like, a decades-long civil war, which culminated in the military uh, retaking power because the military was in power back in the TOS era. So, hmm. That's about the best I got. I also want to point out one other thing. Everyone knows about the Treaty of Algernon. That's, that's such a common thing. And I've actually heard Trek fans discuss it back and forth for years. What's funny, though, is if you actually look it up, there's only two items of the Treaty of Algernon that we know about. One, well, actually three, I suppose I should say. One is the cessation of hostilities because of the incident, the, the Tomed incident. Tomed incident? But, so, cessation of hostilities... The Federation isn't allowed to develop cloaking devices. Okay. When I say develop, I should say utilize. As is made pretty clear in TNG and DS9, the Federation knows how to make cloaks. They could build them right now if they actually felt like it. And yes, I know the out-of-character reason why they don't have cloaks, but we're talking in-character right now. So in-character, they said no cloaks, and they redefined the neutral zone, and that's it. We'll stop fighting. We won't make cloaks. Here's the neutral territory between us. That's it. And I've always found that to be such a weird outcrop of Star Trek lore. But then again, it is worth noting that there's a pretty large period of time in between Star Trek VI and TNG Season 1, which is not defined as well as it probably should be. Um, I mean, for example, we won't even find out for a couple years that a few years ago, the Federation was at war with the Cardassians because the Cardassians haven't been invented yet. So they kind of just made it up as they went, and so it's not really as linear as it could be. Anyways. <clears throat> Next thing I want to talk about when it comes to the Romulans is how awesome Ron Jones is. Now, he went out of his way, they went out of his way, to make most of the human scenes have no music. I think it gets a little awkward for several of them. Like, talky sections having no music is kind of normal for television in general, or, hell, movies even, uh, so any visual medium. But a lot of the talky sections for the, for the past humans, the 90s humans, go on pretty long. So it's a nice, really long section of no music to get to the point where you notice it. By contrast, the moment the Romulan plot actually really starts, which is in the last 15 minutes... Ron Jones does something brilliant. And in fact, if you're listening to it, you've probably heard like something similar before because it's the same general music suite that he was developing for the Borg, parts of which would, would then be later used in Best of Both Worlds. Uh, not literally copy-paste. I mean, he would use the same uh, type of music, the same uh, leitmotifs and stuff like that. Leitmotifs? I never know how to pronounce that word. Anyways. So the moment the Romulan plot starts... And I'd love it if you guys would, would either remember this or go back and watch this. Because the music just kind of starts, and it's tense. It's brilliantly, quietly tense. But then the, not the pace, but the intensity of the music. Not the volume either. Just the intensity and the denseness of the, of the instruments being used slowly increases bit by bit over the next few minutes as the situation builds and builds to this confrontation with the Romulan warbird. 
brilliant stuff really adds to the to the scene and how incredibly like oh, on edge everyone is and it's probably the part of the episode that most people remember most other than the preachness and the old humans lord knows i used to actually say neutral zone is half of a good episode and i was specifically referring to the romulan plot because i remember the romulan plot being awesome and i stand by that statement the borg part of it not so much but the romulan plot awesome because in addition to the, it's not just fake tension you understand why this is a major major galactic power and we're not and we believe they're hostile we have a lot of evidence that they're hostile and we have every reason in the world to attack them like to go in guns blazing that would be an acceptable response it is only picard's insistence that they don't because because he has a brain, basically, because he's approaching this more of a diplomat than as a military commander that makes it so that they come out of this without a shooting war. I even love the bit where the Romulans let their cloak bleed out a little bit specifically to see what the Enterprise would do, to test them. That's brilliant! Because remember, the Romulans are in the same tense standoff. The Romulans, at least at this point, and this will be made both clear and unclear over the next few seasons, don't really want a war right now. Especially since that would mean a war against the Romulans, or excuse me, against the Federation and the Klingons, and that's something that they probably couldn't win, despite their superiority complex. So they, they're just like, I can just picture Marco Lemo's character, who does a good job of this, by the way. Lower the cloaking field by 15%, and then let it sit there for a few seconds, and then bleed it out to 20. Let's see what they do when they think they see us. Because remember, shields don't work properly while cloaked, and everyone knows that. Although maybe their shields do work while cloaked, and you know they've improved them. They don't. We know this now. But at the time, who knows? And so, okay, they didn't fire. All right. Hmm. And then they go ahead and decloak and, and, and open up communications. Brilliant stuff. Um, then Worf has to exposit awkwardly. Eh, whatever. And then the businessman has to poke his head in. That always felt awkward to me. What's weird... See, here's the thing. You might say the businessman is the one who has to point out the obvious, that the Romulans are testing them the same way they're testing the Romulans. The thing is, Picard already picked up on that. Like, Riker's like, what are you talking about? That's stupid. And then Picard says, no, it's pretty accurate. Right? You remember that? Or maybe you just watched the episode, and therefore you really do remember that? Picard had already picked up on that point. That's my point. From a narrative perspective, the businessman being there serves no purpose other than to awkwardly tie the past humans plot, like, like at, at the fingers here, into the, you know, the present Romulan plot. Because otherwise there's no relevance. Oh, also, those are the worst security guards. Um, I'm going to say this week, because I just remembered security guards in Star Trek are kind of terrible. But they are not so good security guards. Get that man off my ridge. Okay. Oh my god, it's a Romulan warbird. I'm going to completely ignore my duty for the next, like, five minutes. Oh, right, you want him off your bridge. Okay, yeah, I'll go ahead and do that. What? Do your damn job. What are you doing? You're, just, you're not even accomplishing anything. You're literally just gawking. Anyways. <clears throat> so then, <laughs> then something happens, which makes me think that, God almighty, the script needed help. Because they say, all right, we agree to this temporary alliance of information and exchange in information, but... I also have to say that you suck. 
I'm, I'm truncating, but that is basically what he says. You suck. Your federation sucks. You've been expanding, and you've been pushing the territory. This is unacceptable. You are not welcome here. We are back. And then they cloak and leave. Um, <laughs> thanks for the exchange of information, guys. <laughs> what? Uh... Pardon me. I actually guess I don't have anything else to say. I want to share one last little tidbit really quick. One of the things that Roddenberry was adamant about... Remember, he was he was kind of already removed from, from direct control over Star Trek at this point in time. At least of TNG. That was part of the politicking battle that was going on. But Roddenberry insisted over and over that the Romulans could not become the major enemy of Star Trek. And he insisted when asked several times, no, no, they're, they pop up every now and again, but they're not the main antagonist of the show. I bring that up because when I ask people who the main antagonist is of any given show, most people's responses are pretty much the same. Of the original series, we have the Klingons. Of, the, of DS9, we have the Dominion. Of Voyager, we have the Borg. Of Enterprise, we have the Zindi, or the, the Temporal Cold War, depending on who you ask on that. And most people that I talk to, when they say, you know, what's the main villain of TNG, it doesn't apply quite the same way as the other shows, but they say it's the Romulans. I'm curious what you think on that. Do you think the Romulans qualify? It's also arguable that no one does, because, I mean, <laughs> TNG didn't really have a recurring main bad guy the way most of these other shows did. Either way, food for thought... I actually enjoyed this, and with a few noteworthy exceptions, I think I liked Season 1 more than I thought I did. And I already was defending it back in the past. Next week, next week we start Season 2 with... with The Child. Don't worry, I swear Season 2... Season 2 is schizophrenic, let's just get down to it. Or maybe bipolar is a better way to put that. So... We'll start off with The Child. Oh, my God. And I'll be seeing you guys next week.